Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series on careers in the atmospheric and related sciences. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Brandon Kroos, and we will be your hosts. Our podcast series will give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We are happy to introduce today's guest, Jeff Juhas, who is a K-12 science teacher at the Morristown Baird School in Morristown, New Jersey. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Jeff, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in meteorology? I think like, like a lot of people in meteorology, uh, the spark of the interest goes way back. When I, was, uh, when I was a kid, I had a paper route back when the Globe and the Herald still let people deliver newspapers. <laughs> and one, I was always concerned with what the weather would be in the morning. And I also got to watch Don Kent on WBZ TV every morning. And just seeing it every day got me very interested in it. And then as a kid, there was, uh, there was always the snow days you were trying to track to see if you were going to get any of those. Um, growing up, we sailed. So knowing about map reading and learning about sea breezes and the Marblehead hurricane that would always blow in and out of the harbor every day were sort of things that as you got interested in them, realizing there was more and more uh, to do. Went to college, ended up sort of leaning towards geology after not really enjoying math once it became too much with linear algebra. Uh, and then trying physics, but then ele you know, electricity and magnetism kind of steered me away. Not to mention the fact that the professor did uh, true-false questions, which I think that experience <laughs> might be something that was in the back of my head and said, I, should, I can teach better than this someday. Although uh, at the time, I didn't think that I was going to be doing that. Uh, and then I went on to grad school at Penn State in meteorology. I, I, I very much relate to your uh, story of having been a paper boy. I was one myself, actually, <laughs> during the, um, what was, uh, there was like a, a horrific nor'easter, I want to say in 1996. I go back a little before that. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was the blizzard of 78. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> that I was delivering newspapers for, and the first day of the blizzard was the first time that the Globe never put out a paper. <laughs> and then the second day, they advertised that they only printed so many thousands of papers, but I got 30 of them, and I was climbing up and down snowdrifts. <laughs> yep. Got a, lot of, got, a, got a lot of good tips that week. Yeah, the, the, new, the newspaper gave me a, 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 a T-shirt that said, I survived the, the blizzard of 96. I had this right. illustration of a paper boy holding, holding a paper above a snowdrift <laughs> and basically buried up to his head. That's what it was like. That was basically my experience also. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so why didn't you just immediately major in meteorology? You just, did you not know enough about it or was it not offered at the school you were at? How did you switch? So I switched. Uh, I went to Brown University as an undergrad, and they did not have an atmospheric sciences or a meteorology program. And it wasn't until my junior year that I met uh, Dr. Thompson Webb, who was doing paleoclimatology and looking at uh, pollen fossils and things like that, that I got interested in it. And he kind of guided me along. I didn't do any, he had, he had one weather and climate course that he taught that I took, but he also sort of guided me to hone up on my uh, differential equations and fluid mechanics and things like that, and was probably the one that guided me the most towards thinking about going to grad school for meteorology. 
Cool. Other than uh, being a paper boy, what was your first job in the field? <laughs> and how did you uh, end up where you are now? Uh, the first job in the field was after graduating from Penn State and still not thinking of myself as a teacher, uh, having had enough of an experience there, knowing I didn't want to go into broadcast meteorology. I started as an environmental consultant doing air quality meteorology for a company called Enser, which has probably been two or three other things since then. And I did air quality modeling to support state and federal air permitting. Did that for about eight years. And in the movie Risky Business, there's a scene where he's sitting in his chem class and he's looking up at the clock and the clock starts ticking backwards. <laughs> and that's sort of how my day started to feel in consulting. And I decided I, <laughs> I, I needed to get out. And really, on a whim, applied for a teaching job. At the time, I had my two, two of my boys, and they were, they were young. I enjoyed coaching. I enjoyed teaching things to kids. And there happened to be a science job posted in the town I lived in. I applied, never heard back. And then <laughs> later that summer, about two weeks before the school year started, I got a call from a principal at a different school district who had just lost a teacher having filled the position that I had applied for mm. and saw my name in the list of people there and called me in, um, offered me the job. And wow. two weeks later, I was a high school science teacher. <laughs> so you had plenty of time to prepare. Very much. So. It was like, here's, here's the textbook. You got a week. Good luck. <laughs> so what opportunities did you pursue that you knew would be beneficial to keeping the job? I mean, what, um, as a teacher, what is required of you uh, to stay current? I think that, um, you know, there's sort of, there's sort of two parts of teaching. There's the skills to be a good teacher, and then there's understanding and knowing the content. And I think that all along, the one thing that's been constant through being successful as a grad student or in consulting or in teaching are, are the basic communication skills you develop. Um, I think that all along being comfortable presenting, being able to make an argument or make a case or, or to share ideas in ways that people understand them is sort of the number one skill. And like anywhere along the way, I, I was definitely not preparing to be a teacher because again until almost the last minute it wasn't something that was necessarily on my radar um, but I think that's something that more than any other sort of non weather based non science based skill is something that's that served me best mm -hmm. so do you have any mentors along the way that provided you with uh, the guidance that you kind of still employ today I think I mentioned uh, Dr. Thompson Webb at Brown is sort of the one that said, you know, maybe maybe meteorology is something I could do as a career. And he was sort of the one that first sort of guided me in that direction. Mm -hmm. And at Penn State, uh, Dr. Peter Bannon was my advisor there. And once he realized or we realized together that I was not going to be a PhD candidate, <laughs> he was actually very good at helping me understand you know, what I wanted to do and getting out with my master's degree. And he is actually one who sort of helped me move along. 
Um, mm-hmm. Once I became a teacher, you know, you sort of have those mentors that you may not know they were mentors at the time. Mm. But back in high school, I had a physics teacher, Mr. Greenman, who was wonderful. And, and like I said, at the time, he didn't necessarily inspire me to be a teacher. But as I've gone into the field, you know, so I sort of think back in classes with him, and it's, there's a lot that I do today that I reflect back on the ways that he was teaching both and the way he just presented material and the way he kind of interacted with and cared for his students. Mm-hmm. So have you, when you started teaching, have you been at the same school? Have you been a teacher at different schools? Um, how long have you been a teacher? I'm in my 23rd year of teaching. Wow. Wow. I, I started at Reading Memorial High School. Uh, that was that first job with a very gratefully a, a principal and a science department chair decided to take a chance on me. And then after three years there, I went to Concord Carlisle High School, also in Massachusetts. Um, there I got to teach in their earth science program. And that's something that sort of got me to be able to teach something more in line with my interests and my backgrounds. And after doing that for 13 years, the public education scene started getting to me. I think the, there's a lot going on with standards and a lot going on with evaluation programs and things like that. Mm-hmm. And while it may be necessary in some ways, for me, it became kind of stifling. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I decided to look into teaching in an independent school. And that's how I ended up down here in New Jersey at the Morristown Baird School, where I do freshman physics, which is fun to play with the freshmen. And I also, at the senior level, we have an environmental science program, which for me was a great opportunity to come down here and teach this almost college seminar type course, uh, which would have trouble fitting in in a lot of different uh, public schools. Yeah. What do you consider the advantages and disadvantages between, you know, an independent school and a public school? I think the advantages of public school, to some extent, what drove me out personally can be an advantage. There's a lot more structure. I think there's a lot more job security with, uh, teacher unions and things along those lines. And for the most part, salaries in public schools tend to be higher than in private schools. Um, What I have found in an independent school is that I have much more freedom in choice in what I want to do with my curriculum and the kind of lessons that I want to teach. So do you feel like you made the right decision switching? You're, You're happy? It's been great for me. Very happy, Uh, especially having found an opportunity to really be able to do the environmental science program where if it, if there's a lot going on, I can, I can lesson plan while reading the New York times Sunday morning and and address current event issues, you know, that week with my students. So what other courses (laughs) beyond math and science, if, if somebody, you know, really wanted to pursue a position as a public school teacher or or a private school teacher and, you know, say they did have a degree in science, um, there are certain professional development opportunities. I mean, I'm assuming most people who go that route, who know about it ahead of time would do like like student teaching or um, some type of internship. I think uh, 
Today, especially if you're getting into public school, the certification requirements are strict enough that it really is very beneficial while you're in college to either actually get an education degree or a lot of schools will sort of allow either a minor or some kind of a certification program where through the school, you'll get the background and you'll do your student teaching and things along those lines. Uh, It's a little trickier if you don't have the education degree to get into the public schools. Uh, One advantage of private schools is there are no certification requirements. And so a private school has the, uh, the option of taking a chance on somebody just because of a, a skill set that they may have picked up while they were in college. Right. So uh, dovetailing on that a little bit, um, because you're unique in that you um, sort of changed fields in the middle of your career into education. Um, what, what were some of, you, you mentioned earlier that there's, there's the, the content skill and then there's also the classroom management skill. Uh, what was uh, classroom manage, learning classroom management like for you? And, and is there anything <laughs> you could have done to uh, prepare yourself better in retrospect? Classroom management when I first started was a disaster. <laughs> I will be the first to admit that. And there are some people I know who tell me that they were stunned that I decided to go back for year two of teaching. <laughs> um, I think that if you're, I think the, the, the conundrum is if you're going into teaching, you're probably doing it because you enjoyed some aspect of being at school. Mm-hmm. You enjoyed some aspect of connecting with your teachers or what you were doing and you were also probably a decent student. So, you know, of course you did your homework. Mm-hmm. Of course you studied for tests and things like that. And, and to stand in front of a classroom for the first time and realize that those students, no matter how much they may like you, would rather be almost anywhere besides in your class. <laughs> and, and to try to work through the idea that their default position isn't going to be to pay attention to you. It is mm-hmm. was a very very big challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I taught a, a college for a year after grad school as as an adjunct, and uh, yeah, I got a, a taste of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think with the students, I mean, I think the lesson is, I think most young teachers come in, and and sort of the mistake they make is they want to be every student's friend. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yes. And I think that the day that I realized that the students actually wanted me to be the adult in the room, Mm. the day that the students really respected me more if I was myself and I was genuine, I was honest with who I was, uh, was the day that my classroom management started to become much better. (laughs) And I'm assuming a, a good sense of humor doesn't hurt either. Right, with with a, with a little slight self-deprecation because the students will always be coming at you with something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, over the course of your career so far, what is the most exciting thing that has happened to you? I think um, the most exciting moment came recently, and it was actually set up a long time ago when I used to teach at Concord Carlisle. One of the things I like 
to do the most is those opportunities you get to work with students outside of the classroom, either as a club advisor, as a coach, or things like that. And almost 15 years ago, I created a trip to Hawaii when I was teaching earth science. We were frustrated. We figured the French teachers got to go to Paris and the Latin <laughs> teachers got to go to Rome. And we told the principal, shouldn't we get to go to Hawaii and study volcanoes? And he kind of said, sure, not thinking anything of it. And then when we came with him with an itinerary for a trip, he sort of realized we had him. So, <laughs> oh, student, that, students are psyched. Students were very happy. So we ran that trip for a few years in Concord. At the time, my son, my youngest son was three. And then when we moved down to New Jersey, my son started here at the Morristown Baird School as a sixth grader. And the trip is for, you know, I started the trip up again here. It's for juniors. And this past spring, he came on the trip with me. Mm-hmm. And the ability to have something that I had shared with almost 100 students over the years to be able to share it with him uh, was something that was very, very exciting. That's great. So for our listeners who may be interested in possibly pursue a career as a teacher, what's your typical day on the job like? Well, the hardest thing to get used to, I think, for people who get into teaching is the structure of the day, you know, where you really have to be somewhere at a certain time and you have to plan when you're going to get your cup of coffee and you have to plan when you're going to get your, you know, go to the bathroom and things like that over the course of the day. Mm. Um, The best part about it is that there really aren't that many typical days. Um, I could have four classes doing the same thing And the fact that I'm presenting them in a room full of teenagers means that that no two classes will go the same. (laughs) And I think that's something that uh, going back to, you know, a a skill that's good to have, you almost have to have a a level of improv ability. Mm -hmm. You know, you sort of need to be able to see where you're going to end up, but know that the students could take you on one of several different paths to get there. (laughs) So I think in a good way, and it's not one of those situations where, you have a to-do list and your day gets out of hand and you don't get anywhere to done on your to-do list. I find it really is that the students are such a wild card. You walk in on any given day and you really don't know what kind of experiences you're going to have. Right. So what do you like most about your job? Uh, it, it, it's the kids. I think one thing I would say is that you can't get into teaching K-12 science because you love just the science. Mm. I mean, you need to be able to love getting kids to be excited about science, but it's not a very high level science. There's nothing I'm doing that goes that far beyond what I did in high school many, many years ago. So if, if it's about you know experiencing cutting edge science, you don't really get that uh, teaching in high school. Mm-hmm. But the kids, the kids are great. The kids keep you young, the kids give you energy. Uh, and then you have those moments where, you know, it could be electric circuits, it could be hurricanes, when the students sort of have that aha moment mm-hmm. and they just get it. And especially when all of a sudden they're getting excited about something that you're excited about. Um, that's really, those, those moments are the best. And also the fact that I still get to get excited about snow days is really kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> so on the other end of the spectrum, what's the most challenging thing about your job? Can it be the same answer? 
Sure, it sure can. <laughs> I mean, it's the kids, right? Uh, and I think that while, while you may have administrators that drive you crazy, you know, that sort of stuff is going to be no different than any other career. But these kids, this wild card, I mean, because someday you're going to be standing there and you're going to be excited about a lesson plan and you're going to have a 55-minute class to fill. And it may be something that the day before you did with one class and you did not even get through it. And then the next day you try to come with full of energy with the exact same thing and you present it to your class and it just drops like a lead balloon. (laughs) (laughs) And all of a sudden you're 15 minutes in with another 30 minutes to go and and you're digging into your bag of tricks because you need more content because it just didn't go the way you planned. I mean, that's really... When, when, when stuff doesn't work, when you're not getting the reaction from the students that you think you're going to get, that's always challenging. And then getting back to earlier comments, I mean, the, the discipline side of thing is not the fun part of the job, uh, but sort of like parenting, uh, it's a necessary part of it. Right. D- did you, you mentioned improv, did you take an actual improv class or have you kind of learned that on the job? I, I never actually took one, but you learn <laughs> that you have to be, <laughs> at, to be, you have to be a little quicker than the students. <laughs> so, uh, do you feel like your job allows for a good work-life balance? For me, it does, especially if you're a family-oriented person, mm-hmm. because if you're teaching you are at least on a similar schedule to your children. Right. And that's something that I've valued throughout my entire career is that, you know, just to be able to work full time, but still be able to coach all my sons in sports, to still be able to attend events, Mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, go to every school assembly you could. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think from that standpoint, it's been great. Um, it's sometimes a little challenging as far as the schedule goes, because what you also learn is that if you're a teacher, you're going to bed a couple hours earlier than all of your friends. What time does your day start? <laughs> we actually we actually start kind of late here. We don't start until eight. Oh, that's good. Uh, I started before here. I was starting at seven twenty-five, and teachers were expected to be there at seven. Oof. <laughs> So, as you can imagine, it's sort of what what comes up is you're going to make dinner plans with friends and you're saying five (laughs) and they're they're saying 730 and you're saying I'm in bed by 730. Can we make it a little earlier? (laughs) And so there's a little bit of a challenge there, but nothing you really can't uh, work out. I I would imagine that um, you don't have as much flexibility either as, as some other jobs where, you know, you, you have certain vacations and I'm not sure if it's the same with independent schools that is with public schools, but you know, you, you're expected to be there. If you're not there, you probably have to go through a lot of trouble to come up with a a lesson plan for a substitute teacher. So I'm guessing that it's not good to just say, Hey, I can't come in today. Um, (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's, there's no doubt that it takes more work to prepare for my classes when I'm not going to be here <laughs> than when I am going to be here because you have to script it out in so much more detail for someone who's not you right. to be able to run the day that you want to run. And as far as the timing of the vacation goes, it's, it's a long, long time 
since I've been to the beach in September. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never, I've never been able to take advantage of that. I've never been able to take advantage of the, the discount rates that Disney offers at different times of the year. Mm. So there is, and that gets back a little bit to even, you know, the day. And I suppose I don't always think about it because I've been doing it so long, but also over the course of the year, your time is very, very, very structured. And it is, it is difficult to get personal time beyond a day here and a day there. Uh, so that's something that does take a little getting used to. How about uh, summers? Are you off or is there something else you do to, to bring in more income or to keep yourself busy? So I think that's something that as I've gotten older and further along in my career, the need to make money in the summertime has been less for me. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that most most new teachers uh, to make up for the salary do do something over the summer. Mm-hmm. For me now, uh, the financial part of the summer is I get to save money because I don't have to pay pay somebody to redo my deck. I redo the deck and <laughs> sort of things like that. Uh, but it's also the summer is a great time to sort of being a continuing learner. Um mm-hmm. I think if you're a good teacher, you're also somebody who always wants to learn and having time over the summer has, you know, sort of allows you to pursue a lot of different uh, opportunities. I mean, I'll make the plug for the the stuff that AMS education does with the project atmosphere and the Mori project and things like those. So Mm -hmm. to be able to participate in those programs um, several years ago, it was either NOAA or NASA sponsors the research experience for teachers program which is sort of like the reu program and i was able to spend a summer at mit's haystack observatory in massachusetts both learning how it works and developing lesson plans so the summer while you can sit back and do nothing and enjoy and relax the summer does offer you an opportunity to um do professional development to learn new things and to to make some few extra bucks if you need to. Yeah. Is there anything you wish you had done differently in your career? I don't know. Um, I don't know if I would have gotten here without all the steps I had taken along the way. Uh, if I mean, it would have been nice if I had stayed in public education to start right out of school because I do think that Teachers who start right out of school in their early to mid twenties, there and they go to public school, they tend to be looking near maxing out in the retirement system by the time they're in their fifties, right. mid late fifties, which is kind of nice. Uh, but that said, I was in my early thirties when I started teaching high school, and I don't know if I could have done it if I wasn't you know, more than 10 years older than the students. Mm-hmm. I think there's a definite challenge there when you're 22, 23, and you're going to teach high school and you're teaching, you know, 18 year old kids who are only four or five years younger than you. It sort of gets a little close. Right. As long as, as far as that goes. So are your students aware of uh, the AMS and have you shared anything with them or ever taken them to an annual meeting? Uh, yes. Ever since, and I, I guess it was sort of one of those for me, sort of a career midlife crisis moment <laughs> about 10, 15 years ago. I sort of got myself more involved in AMS, trying to get some more uh, background, get some more, so sort of a spark into my career. And as doing that, I started going to the annual meeting 
on a regular basis. Got to meet a bunch of uh, eras there. And ever since, I've been bringing some high school students to the annual meeting as well. Oh, wow. And I think that um, this both in Concord Carlisle and here, I've started weather services clubs where I've had students come in. And the beauty of that is there are so many skill sets that can apply to a meteorology club. Everything from wanting to forecast to computer graphics to presentation skills to programming to tinkering with hardware and stuff like that. Uh, that it's really been a wide variety of students that I've got involved. And then what I've taken advantage of is having them on a yearly basis go to the annual meeting and present at the now conference and education, sort of sharing posters and occasionally presentations about the work that they've done and uh, how not necessarily the scientific discoveries they've made, but how these experiences from an education standpoint have been very beneficial to them. Oh, that's excellent. As a matter of fact, I don't know how soon this will get out, but I would, if, if you're going to AMS Boston, come find us on the floor of the poster session. I'll have a handful of students again there this year. That must be such a great experience for them. They must really enjoy it. It really is. And I think that even if they're not planning on going into meteorology, to be able to be in that kind of environment to sort of see how this is how science is really done. Mm-hmm. And, and also uh, an appreciation to all, all the members of the AMS, they are, they are treated like rock stars. I mean, <laughs> most, most professors and people like that who are there can't believe that high school kids are doing this and can't believe the opportunities they've had. Uh, and so they, they, get, they get a lot more appreciation than sometimes, you know, a science-based clubs would get back at their high school. And you mentioned errors. Can you, um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with that education program, um, can you tell us a little bit about, about that? So AMS education has had these errors and LIT's local implementation teachers, which are teachers that have worked through the AMS doing different programs and really as part of almost like a liaison sort of as a outreach from AMS uh, into the community to sort of be that connection that helps AMS reach out into the teaching community and also helps the teaching community sort of feedback into AMS uh, with ideas and how, how things can be done. Jeff, we always ask our guests one last fun question at the end of each podcast. What is your all time favorite movie? I mean, I guess I, if I can, I'll say two. Sure. Uh, one will be the the stereotypical weather geek movie. I love Twister. Uh. <laughs> I, I could watch <laughs> Twister over and over and over again. Uh, whether it's true or not, or works or not, it's a uh, it's a fun story. Uh, and then also, and, and probably just as high quality of movie, the old western. Silverado, ah. uh, which I've always loved. And one, I can recite most of the lines from the movie, but also the Kevin Costner character, Jake, is probably why my oldest son is named Jake. Interesting. So I, always, I always enjoy watching that one. I, I haven't seen that. I'm going to have to put that on my list. It's a great with Brian Dennehy and Jeff Goldblum and Kevin Klein. All these people are in it before they were really famous. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So regarding uh, a Twister, uh, as an education professional, <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, what are some of the uh, inaccuracies in that movie, if you were to pick one or two? <laughs> I, I think the biggest inaccuracy is that it was... It's an awfully exciting evening that's going on there. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, with all those movies, I think it's great because if you can do a movie, I mean, when I've done uh, Volcanoes, I show Dante's Peak. <laughs> and, and and I have been known to show The Core, which is worse than most as far as scientific accuracies go. <laughs> but I think that all of them, if you can get the kids engaged... And get them to allow, and think about what's real and not what's not real. You know, you're teaching them without them knowing you're teaching them. Right. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff, and sharing your work experiences with us. It's been my pleasure. That's our show for today. Please join us next time. Rain or shine.